So as I began th to think about this topic after finishing up the He is Sovereign one, my mind was pretty much blank. I usually give myself a week off um, before I start to dive into the next weeks later. I was struggling to figure out how to approach this massive reality. On one hand, there's abundant proof um, from God's word about God's love. On the other hand, as I reflect on my own life and the life of most people I know, I believe it's probably the biggest thing about God that we wrestle with. Um, it's not that we question God's love generally, but to really take it in and really believe that he loves us, it's hard to grasp that. We say it with our lips, but often our lives show that we doubt it more than we like to admit. Why is it that we distrust God when he says that he loves us? I think, as I've mentioned before in the other attributes that we've covered, that it's because we bring in so many of our own thoughts and misconceptions into the issue rather than really studying what it means that God is love and that he loves us. We tend to judge his love by what we can see, how we feel, whether or not things are going well for us or not. Um, yeah, and we all know that we live in a, in a world, I was really struck by this thought, we know that we live in a world that's scarred by sin, um, disease, and death, right? We all know that. We also know that as humans, we have weaknesses and limitations that are just part of being human and not even related to sin. Yet somehow, we make it a condition of God to eradicate all of those things to prove that he loves us. When I was a young teen, there was a book that came out for people my age titled, If God Loves Me, Why Can't I Get My Locker Open? And I don't think I ever read the book, but I remember thinking that the title seemed kind of silly. But years later, that I think of that title all the time because I grew to understand what it meant. Um, I don't struggle to remember um, that title. It's, I think about it all the time because um, in everyday life, we judge God every time something goes wrong or is hard. Forgetting a locker combination isn't a sin. It's just part of being human and not having a perfect memory. I clearly remember the stress of junior high. I don't know if you guys, that was like the worst time in my life. And, and it wasn't just about the stress of the locker combination, it was the stress of a whole new way of being educated in this place where I had to go from class to class with t teachers and more kids that I didn't know. Um, I needed to know that God was with me and for me, even what felt like a very difficult time. On the flip side of wondering if God really loves us is the command for us to love God. There's a connection between our lack of love for God and our lack of understanding of his wondrous love for people. And this makes sense because God's word tells us that we love because he first loved us. So really grasping God's love is the way to fuel our love for him. Last month, we considered God's sovereignty in all things. Nothing in life is an accident. All things are in God's sovereign hands. 
I mentioned that the reality of that feels scary to us, so we must consider that his character is inextricably tied to every one of his attributes. They don't operate alone. He must be true to all that he is. So if I can't get my locker to open, to continue that example, I must understand that God knows and controls even that little difficulty, and that he is good even then, and that he is showing his love to me in that moment. This is true of very difficult things as well, of course, but if we don't understand God's loving of of us in the light difficulties, how will we ever be ready for those things that are enormous? So we're going to take some time to unpack God's love a little more this morning. You'll notice that the title is, He is Love. It seemed as if the title should be, He is Loving, but it's not, and that's a big part of our struggle to grasp God's love. He is not loving as it describes an action. Love is not just an attribute, but it is His very nature. He is love. He is the origin and meaning of love itself. Um, The verse that y'all have that Jackie painted for us this morning states this clearly, and I'll just read the entire verse. She has a, a portion of it, but the whole thing says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in his love abides in God, and God abides in him. 1 John 4, 16. God is love. Without him, there is no love. Think about that. We considered last month God's creation of all things. He is responsible for love in this world. This is not a man-made concept. When did love begin? It began when God did, and we know that God has no beginning or no end. God and love are intertwined. Any expression of true love in this world reflects God. We often mix it up and think that love as we know it is how God operates, and so we doubt. A.W. Pink in The Attributes of God says that God's love is not amiable weakness, not good-natured indulgence, no winking at sin, or mere sickly sentiment pattered after human emotion. If God himself is love, and this love is not patterned after human emotion, let's look at some of the ways we can define God's love based on how we see it in his word. First, his love is uninfluenced. Foundationally, God is uninfluenced in his love because he is love. If his very essence is love, then nothing can influence that. Moses tells the Israelites in Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the land of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. We all know that the Israelites were not stellar examples of faithfulness to God. In fact, they're pretty good representatives of us all in their fickleness of affection, difficulty in obeying, and poor judgment of God's activity in their lives. Yet God loved them not based on their behavior, but because he wanted to. We hear the same language when Paul tells Timothy that God 
who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, 2 Timothy 1.9. God saved us, which we're going to consider later as a key demonstration of his love, not because of our works, but his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ. When? When we made a good decision, when we got our act together, when we've groveled enough and promised to do better, when we've mustered up enough love in our hearts for him? No, it says before the ages began. In Ephesians 1, it says that we were chosen before the foundation of the world, so in eternity past, before we ever did anything good or bad, God chose us. He set his love on us. I mentioned it before, 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. God is the initiator and his initiator. Initiation has nothing to do with us and everything to do with him. Why is this an important distinction? If we tie our behavior to God's love, how hopeless would that be? Can we even go a day without ignoring God at some point or thinking an unkind thought about a person made in God's image, speaking words that are unhelpful at best and hurtful at worst, complaining about something, becoming impatient with others, thinking more highly of ourselves than we do of those around us, or any number of combinations of things that are rightly deserving of our holy God's wrath? Our sin is a reality, and it's a reality to be dealt with, and our righteousness is important, but it's never the basis of God's love. The point, I think, may be the one, this point, may be the one that we struggle to believe the most, because haven't we all experienced people leaning away from us when we disappoint them? Haven't we all done the leaning away? We reject and are rejected based on behavior. This is what we know of the world. Some people are easier to please than others, but everyone has their limits. But God, that beautiful phrase, he loves because he is love. We can't earn it and we can't lose it. Not only is God lo God's love uninfluenced, but it's eternal because he is eternal and he is love eternally. I just mentioned that he set his love on us before we were created, and this love, that has no this love has no beginning, and also it has no end. These two points go hand in hand, so I'll say it again. If I couldn't do something to make him love me, I also can't do anything to make him stop loving me. He, he will love me to the end. His love is without limit. He tells us that he has loved us with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31.3. His love is also sovereign because he is sovereign. As we looked at God's sovereignty last month, we considered that as God, he can do as he pleases. This includes loving whom he loves. This is a hard concept for us. Doesn't God love everyone? Let me ask you this. Does God save everyone? Obviously not, although there certainly are religions that are built on that premise. The Bible is clear that God does not set his saving love on everyone. He loves who he pleases, and he is holy and good to do this. In Romans, Paul speaks to this reality. 
As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, Romans 9.13. Last year I taught about God's love as shown in the life of Jacob. This man was a deceiver, a cheat, and honestly just an ordinary man, not remarkable at all. In fact, he was not different from Esau, his brother, who God hated. God didn't hate Esau because of anything he did any more than God loved Jacob for something he did. God has the prerogative to do this because he is the sovereign one. Paul understands the Romans' reaction and possibly ours to the statement about God loving Jacob yet hating Esau, so he continues. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Let me tell you, at this point, I went down a whole rabbit hole of how God who is love can hate. And I was getting completely overwhelmed. And then Steve handed me a stack of commentaries on Romans. And I found this statement that I thought was helpful um, by Douglas Moo. If God's love of Jacob consists in his choosing Jacob to be the seed who would inherit the blessings God promised to Abraham, then God's hatred of Esau is best understood to refer to God's decision not to bestow this privilege on Esau. It might be best translated, reject. Love and hate are are not here then emotions that God feels, but actions that he carries out. In an apparent paradox that troubles Paul, as well as many Christians, God loves the whole world at the same time as he withholds his love in action or election from some. John Piper says this, so God's choice is based on his own hidden wisdom. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. He does not base his choices on irrelevant considerations, but on the counsel of his will. He is free to choose whomever he will, and his reasons are never owing to our goodness. How could they be? We are all sinners deserving of death, yet he chose freely to save some. God does have a general love for all mankind, but he has a redeeming love for those whom he sovereignly chooses. And this is hard stuff, and it's okay to wrestle with it. What it's not okay to do is to accuse God of wrongdoing. And I certainly can't give it a fully thoughtful explanation in this short talk, But I want to encourage you not to be afraid of hard things that you see in the Bible. Humility is, of course, key as we read God's Word and as we talk about difficult things with one another. It's important for us to be humble and remember that we can't fully comprehend this, and we need to just humbly talk about them. There are some things that we won't fully comprehend, but we do trust that if God describes himself as love, then nothing he does in this world can go against that nature of love. God's love is uninfluenced, eternal, infinite, and sovereign, and it's also immutable. We've considered the fact that God never changes in a different different month. It only stands to reason that his love never changes. 
the classic verses on this topic are found in Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can you hear in that language the reality of the kinds of trials that will happen to us in this life? Yet they are not separated from God's love for us. If nothing can separate us from God's love, and if we are recipients of the sovereign love of God, then that means it is a fixed reality. And just, this is a little ad-libbing, but I was thinking about this, this this morning. I read something earlier this year that really impacted me. I've thought a lot about. It was just the statement that God is content in his love for me, for you. And I think that goes well with this point of immutability. Because his love never changes, he's content in it. And the reason I was so struck by that statement was because it's so different than my love for other people. My love is not content. There's always something I want to fix or change. It's not that I withhold love necessarily, but my love is kind of like agitated. I really want to see this thing get fixed. I really want to see you grow in this area. And sure, God wants us to grow, but he's content because he knows what he's doing. He is growing us. He is changing us. So his immutable, immutable love is content. Um, last month, I shared a quote from a writer, Sarah Clarkson, about trusting God with her fears. Her latest newsletter related the following regarding raising young children amid all the hard things in this world. She had just read Psalm 46 about God being our refuge and strength and an ever-present help in trouble, and she was thinking about it, meditating on it, what that, what that meant for her own heart in the midst of her struggle, and what it meant for her children in the struggle they were walking through. And here's what she realized. As I read about God's unchanging strength, his eternally stable goodness, I realize that what they need, meaning her children, what they need most to learn from me in this season is not dread of change, not a sense of my helplessness in the face of uncertainty, but rather the faithfulness of God. They need my compassion, yes, they need to be able to grieve, but more crucially, they need to witness my surety that God is with us, that his presence makes us glad that we have no fear because though everything else in the world around us changes, God's love for us doesn't. We can look for it, hunt it out like a treasure, spot it in all the pilgrim days ahead. I love how she connected God's unchanging presence with us to his unchanging love. 
I also love how she said we can look for it, hunt it out like a treasure, spot it in the pilgrim days ahead. We can always be sure to find it because his love doesn't change. It's a permanent part of our existence. Not only is God's love immutable, but it's also holy. God's love is so often referred to as being steadfast, which is another word to describe immutability. Yet listen to these verses. Moses is reminding God of his promises, and he says this to God in Numbers 14, 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. God doesn't wink at sin. sin. That was in a quote we, we uh, read earlier, but have you guys heard that expression before? He's not a benevolent guy up there somewhere who has a boys will be boys kind of attitude about sin. He will by no means clear the guilty. His holiness demands justice for all the unholiness that exists in this world. Do you feel the tension in this? How can in that verse that we just read say his steadfast love forgiving iniquity and, and the next breath say he will by no means clear the guilty? Um, that brings us to the final thing that I'll mention about God's love, which will be the biggest point. God's love is gracious, which is revealed in his mercy. Right after Moses spoke those words to God, he prays for pardon from God for Israel in Numbers 14, 19. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. What do you hear in this prayer? First, there's an acknowledgement before God that there is iniquity and a need for pardon, which leads to a plea for forgiveness. And this plea is not hopeless because it's rooted in God's steadfast love and the precedence that God has already shown them by forgiving them in the past. And this might sound confusing in the Old Testament because Jesus hasn't arrived as the God-man to take away sin. But God's plan from eternity past was always this, that he would sacrifice his son for us. Anyone in the Old Testament who had faith in God's power to forgive and entrusted themselves to this was putting faith in the salvation of God looking forward, just as we now look back. For Old Testament believers and New Testament believers alike, faith had to be in God for salvation. We have the privilege of knowing all that Jesus accomplished for us, but the Old Testament believers had the promise of what the Messiah would accomplish for them, and both require faith. I found it interesting when I searched the word love in my Bible software that love is not mentioned at all in the first 21 chapters of Genesis. Obviously, since God is love, it doesn't mean that it wasn't there undergirding everything. The first mention of the word love is not about God's love either, but about a man's love, and not love for himself, and not love for his wife, but for his son. God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, 
and go to the land of Moriah and offer them him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. What an interesting thing that the first mention of love corresponds to God's greatest demonstration of love in the giving of his only son. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son whom he loved in obedience to God. However, God did not intend for him to sacrifice his son. It was a test of his obedience. For us, this story is a great foreshadowing of what God did for us when he gave his only son. Unlike Abraham, God was not being tested, and it was not an obedience issue. God freely, willingly, lovingly gave his son. A.W. Pink says, Christ died not in order to make God love us, but because he did love us. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is truly important. God the Father loves us, and it's because of that love that he sent Jesus to die. Jesus also loves us. You might remember Steve's sermon from a few weeks ago about Jesus praying in the garden, knowing what was about to happen, and asking God if there was another way. And yet he surrendered to the Father's will, and he did so in great love for us. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John 3:16. What tempts you to doubt the love of God? Whatever it is, go back to the cross. Remember the verse about how God will by no means clear the guilty? He really doesn't. What he does is execute justice through Jesus, paying the penalty for us. This is love. We had great need. An uncrossable chasm existed between us and God, and God brought us near through the sacrifice of his only son. This is the truest and clearest proof that we have of God's love for us. Our circumstances are never the proof of God's love. Sure, he does give us many blessings, but consider this. What kind of life did Jesus, God's beloved, live? He lived in poverty, disgrace, persecution. He felt hunger and thirst. He had no place to lay his head. He was homeless. He was spit upon and beaten and handed over to his enemies. What did God give to Jesus? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was there for him through all the trials of this life, confirming his calling, comforting him, strengthening him, giving him the nourishment that he needed. We really need to learn that spiritual blessings are far more important than temporal earthly blessing of prosperity and wellness. And this is hard for us, isn't it? It's such a prevalent theme in our culture. God also gives the Holy Spirit to us to help us to experience God's love. It's the means in which we know God's love. What a gift. In Ephesians, Paul carefully and beautifully lays out the gospel for us, how it is all God's doing and not because of anything we did. And after spelling all of this out, he prays this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened 
with all power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God." so that we may have strength to comprehend and know the love of Christ. Isn't that a curious statement? Why would we need strength to comprehend the love of Christ? Part of the reason Jesus loves us is because he is God in nature. He says, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father, John 14, 9. The way we see Jesus' love in his life also displays God's love. In his mercy, his sacrifice and servanthood, his compassion, his healing, all these characteristics of his life show us the hands and feet of the, of the Father's love and the impulses of the Father's love. His love is so overwhelming and unexpected. We don't know of any love like this outside of him. We see glimpses, but not the perfect love that casts out fear. Because we are loved by the Father and adopted as his children, we no longer fear punishment for our sins. We need strength to comprehend this kind of love, a love that has no beginning or end, a love that is dependent on its source and not our behavior. This is the best news. We belong to God and he has made us his own. He loves us with an everlasting love. I want to ask you a question that I mentioned before. What tempts you to doubt God's love for you? Is it unwanted circumstances such as pain, grief, or loneliness? Perhaps it's the way others have treated you. Perhaps it's negative messages from your childhood that made you feel that you somehow had to earn love. Maybe you're looking for some sort of whoosh of emotional realization to believe it. Just as I've mentioned other times in this series, God's love is an objective reality. It's not subjective. It doesn't matter whether you feel God's love for you or feel worthy of it. He loves you. How can you grasp this more? I'll re reiterate Sarah Clarkson's wonderful application in her own life. We can look for it hunted out like a treasure, spot it in all the pilgrim days ahead. And one of the best places to find God's love is in his word. You probably knew I was going to say that, and that's true. But also, as I mentioned, he gives us the Holy Spirit to assure us of his love so we can also pray and ask God to do this work in us through his spirit. And as always... We can confess our struggles and doubts and ask God to open our eyes to this reality as we hunt it out like a treasure and spot it on our days here as pilgrims. And just like on a treasure hunt, we can waste time looking in all the wrong places. Looking at all the bad news of this world will blur your vision. There's plenty of it, and there's always been plenty of it, really, truly. Looking inside yourself will leave you insecure. Looking at social media or just the world around you will make you feel like God's love is a competitive sport. Look at him. 
Take note of how he tells us that he loves us. Record those acts of faithfulness that you see. Spy out his mercy that meets you even in the mundane moments of your life. Marvel that he's redeemed you. Remember that he is your heavenly father who takes care of you. Recall his trustworthy nature. Recount how he has led you till now. Be a love seeker and you will find love. And the last thing I want to bring up is the way that we love others. Knowing God's love is the best cure for our lack. Do you feel the lack? Do you feel a struggle to exhibit the kind of love the Bible calls us to? A love that is patient, kind, content, humble, self-sacrificing, not prone to irritation or resentment, not vindictive, but wanting to see the best in others and bearing with them when you don't, enduring with them to the end. This is the kind of love God has for you. This is the kind of love Jesus demonstrated when he walked this earth. Rather than gritting your teeth, that, that's something I, my children will remember. I always did as, when they were children. I would grit my teeth a lot. <laughs> so this is this example. If you don't know what that means, that's what it's like. Rather than gritting your teeth and forcing yourself to love others, you can pray and ask God to bring you into his love. Don't you think that this is the kind of prayer that he would delight to answer? This is one of those ask anything in my will and I will answer it kind of prayers. Don't spend a bunch of time focused on your lack of love. It's common. Everybody struggles with that. It's not good. But even this is proof that we needed Jesus. He gives us the privilege of repenting and knowing that we're forgiven. Instead, immerse yourself in the love God has for you and realize that he has this love for others too. Ask for the Holy Spirit to fill you so that your life bears his fruit of love. Jesus tells us in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Why is this? Because he is love. His disciples know this love and show this love. You can't show what you don't know. So again, I'll say, look for it like treasure in the pilgrim days ahead. Lord, we really do need your help because we're so distracted by a million things in this world, by the things that we need to accomplish, by the things we think we need to do to make ourselves important or successful, by the, all the gloom and doom that is around us, especially in these days that we find ourselves in right now. And we just pray that your love would fill our hearts through your Holy Spirit, that we might experience your love more, that we might think about you and your steadfast love for us in the mundane moments of our days, that we might see you as a treasure and look for this love that you've given to us so freely. I pray that you would quiet our hearts 
to look to this love, which is the, really the thing that matters most in this life, is that we're loved by you, to help us to know this more and more. And I pray that now as we just discuss this a little bit amongst ourselves, that you would uh, just help us to see areas where we need to grow and help us to care for one another. In Jesus' name, amen.